You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. We had the x-ray and, uh, and they did find it was viral pneumonia, so I have to go to the hospital for perhaps a week. I think, I think the main thing you should do is try to get some rest. But, you know, if you want anything, just... I rest all the time. No, oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. sure. Got it. In a hospital, boy, that drives me nuts. I know. It's very but, difficult. So if you want anything and you want us to bring out FYIs or if you want me to come out there and do anything, let me uh, Okay. And thank you. I, and good luck. Oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. I know it is. But yeah. I think you'll be a lot better tomorrow. But try to... I told Ziegler to make the announcement because I says it's the only time... In his career, he'll hear the press corps clap. Oh, those bastards. Yep. They clap. Senate Watergate Committee broke away from its schedule today to hear from a surprise witness. Alexander Butterfield, a former White House aide who now heads the Federal Aviation Administration, appeared before the committee with startling new testimony. We have details from ABC's Sam Donaldson. Alexander Butterfield was one of former White House Chief of Staff Haldeman's top aides until last March 14th. Many of his duties were conventional, but one of them was not. Butterfield said he was in charge of the presidential bugging system. It seemed that in the spring of 1970, President Nixon ordered that certain of his White House offices and certain of his White House telephones be bugged so that everything that was said could be tape recorded. The bugs in the Oval Office and the Executive Office Building hideaway worked automatically. Aaron, would it be your opinion that uh, those devices would pick up any and all conversations, uh, no matter where the conversations took place within the room and no matter how uh, soft the conversations might have been? With regard to the Oval and EOB offices? Yes. yes, sir. Democratic senators on the committee agree tonight the pressure is on the president to produce those tapes or run the grave risk that public opinion will decide he can't because of what is on them. And since you were the Attorney General of the United States, why didn't you throw Mr. Liddy out of your office? Well, I think Mr. Dash, in hindsight, I know I should have thrown him out of the office. I should have thrown him out of the window. Well, since you did neither, uh, and that relates to uh, some of the subject matter that I'm at this point not able uh, to talk to the committee about. The Foreign Intelligence Activities was not, had nothing to do with the, the, the opinion of the Hillsburg psychiatrist about his intellectual or emotional or psychological state. How do you know that, Mr. Chairman? Because I can understand the English language. It's my mother tongue. Over Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean, our job was to see that the White House stayed green. We might have had flaws like bending the laws, but God only knows it was for a good cause. But so it won't come as a terrible blow. There's one little thing that we think you should know. Whatever we say isn't quite what we mean. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. I had no prior knowledge 
of the Watergate break-in. I neither took part in nor knew about any of the subsequent cover-up activities. My statement has been challenged by only one of the 35 witnesses who appeared. Dean was saying one thing, and the White House was saying something contradictory, and Senator Irvin felt like there may never be a way that this was going to be resolved. The president almost from the outset began asking me a number of leading questions, which made me think that the conversation was being taped and a record was being made to protect himself. I had rehearsed this in my mind many, many times. If asked a relatively vague or indirect question, the answer to which would be about the tapes, I could easily fuzz it. I could give a vague answer in, in response. But if I were asked a direct question, I would give a direct answer and the tapes would be revealed. A memo had come over secretly from the White House to the Republicans. It was a detailed account. Uh, line by line quotes um, of what Dean had said to the president, what the president had said back. He flipped this little paper my way and said, where might this paper have come from? And Butterfield uh, picked up the thing and read it and said, oh, this is very detailed, this is very detailed. So well, where could it come from? He said, well, let me think about that a minute. And he set it down. And to my great relief, they moved on to other things. Well, uh, Scott Armstrong was asking Butterfield about other matters through the remainder of his interview. I was trying to decide how I wanted to approach this because I knew my time would come. I, I asked uh, Butterfield if there might be any uh, validity to the suggestion made by John Dean in his testimony that there was a taping system in the White House. That was a direct question. So I said... I remember saying, I don't know why I said this, I said, I'm sorry you fellows asked me that question. Well, I was sorry. <laughs> yes, there was. And they said, could you tell us about it? And he came up, his face was drenched, his eyes were bulging, and the first words that came out of his mouth is, the president bugged himself. Sam Dash and Jim Hamilton came out to the house. Uh, Mo and I were there, but Sam really got right down to business. And what he told me is he said that, uh, John, there's a taping system in the White House. How do you feel about that? And I can remember that um, Mo and John, I believe, were sitting on a couch, and I was standing by the fireplace. And I did that on purpose so I could gauge John's reaction. I was watching him very intently, and Sam told him, and I never will forget it. John broke into this huge smile, this beaming smile. I couldn't have been more elated. I said, Sam, I said, everything I've told you, you're now going to find a record for. And suddenly there's a phone call. So they bring the phone over to me, and I answered, it's Jim Hamilton. And I said uh, to him that the committee wanted him to testify uh, that afternoon. And he was quite upset about this. I was profane, as a matter of fact, and I told Jim Hamilton, nothing against Jim Hamilton, but I just said, I am not going to be there. So I went back up to the hearing room, and uh, I leaned over to um, uh, Senator Irving, and I said, Senator, I have located him, Mr. Butterfield. He is in the barbershop, uh, but he says he's not going to come. And I'm watching the TV. All barbershops and beauty salons had the TV on. Suddenly, I see Jim Hamilton behind the, the chairman, and I, he turns and sort of looks, and 
Hamilton whispered in his ear something, and those those big bushy eyebrows of his, I saw him go, like in disbelief at what he's hearing from Hamilton. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And he said, uh, you tell Mr. Butterfield that if he is not here uh, early this afternoon, that I'm going to send the Senate sergeant at arms to arrest him. I knew he wasn't really going to have federal marshal pick me up on the street, but that was his way of saying, be here. At uh, shortly after one, uh, he arrived at the uh, uh, the Senate, uh, somewhat contrite, uh, more compliant, and nicely quaffed. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. The, the moment that Alexander Butterfield reveals the existence of the tapes, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a shock. You can hear some of the congressman gasp. State your name. My name is Alexander Porter Butterfield. What were your duties at the White House, Mr. Butterfield? Uh, I was responsible for the management and ultimate supervision of the Office of Special Files. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any devices, uh, the listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. I mean, what a moment. Also, how he pauses so dramatically before answering. I've asked him why he did that, yeah. and he says he has no idea, no memory. He said, I knew it was an important moment. I wanted to think and sort of collect myself before I... But they knew the answer to this question. The staff of the committee had learned learned three days earlier. They gave it to Fred because he was a Republican, and they wanted bipartisanship on this issue. President was in his gown, and we sat down at a, at a table on the other side of the room, across from his bed. My presentation was centered around the consideration that the destruction of the tapes would be a felony, an obstruction of justice, and could form the first count of a bill of impeachment. And that was something to think about. On the other hand, uh, Bizarre's uh, legal point of view was that until they were subpoenaed, uh, this tape, these tapes were the president's property. Uh, I happened to share that view. The president became very angry and said to me that he was not going to take either of their advice uh, and would prefer to sleep on it overnight. I told him he didn't have long to make his decision. I had a personal phone call from John Conley saying, Bob, you've got to get to the president. You've got to tell him to pile those tapes up in a large pile out in the Rose Garden, assemble the entire press corps around the edges of the Rose Garden, soak those tapes with gasoline, and light them with a match. The people that were, that were getting in touch with him were, for the most part, uh, persons who had had very extensive discussions with him and were on tape and had... Uh, understandable reasons why they would want those tapes to disappear from the face of the earth. Uh, I considered it, uh, but I felt 
that it would be an indication that I felt that there were conversations on there that demonstrated that I was guilty. I thought it would be an admission of guilt to destroy them. If I had thought that on those tapes that there was conversation that was criminal, I sure as the Dickens would have destroyed them. It therefore becomes my duty promptly to seek subpoenas and other available legal procedures for obtaining the evidence for the grand jury. We will initiate... Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Mr. Koss came to us in, in the jury room and said to us that Mr. Nixon wasn't going to honor the subpoena and what we what do we want to do about it? My jaw figuratively dropped when he said to me, well, Mr. Cox, I don't really doubt your word, but I think I shouldn't simply accept what you say about the grand jury's vote. I ought to have them in open court and poll them. It was a marvelously symbolic scene. There were the 19, 20 grand jurors lined up. They'd be the first 20 people you met on the street. Some black, some white, some employed, others without jobs, old so forth. We were really adamant in our position that we had a right as the grand jury people to hear what was on the tapes. And they were really in what we thought were in the public domain. We thought they weren't President Nixon's tapes. We thought they were were the public's tapes. Uh, The court, after hearing the presentation, uh, signed the order to show cause Uh, It is returnable August 7 at 10 a.m. Each day, a president of the United States is required to make difficult decisions on grave issues. I would say these people are going to cost uh, about $1.5 million.
This kind of frank discussion is only possible when those who take part in it know that what they say is in strictest confidence. That argument really doesn't prevail. A president, we don't think, would be held by a court to have the right to have secret criminal conversation. We've talked about the tapes. We've talked about the installation of the taping system, past presidents having tapes. We've talked about your role in transcribing the tapes, guarding the tapes during the defense of the president. What was the president's connection with the tapes? Well, it was quite remote, Hugh. Uh, uh, the, the, the tape system was installed in February of 1971, and it's automatic. So if the president's in the room and there's sound, it's, it's recorded. And of course, if it's a tap on a phone line, it's very clear. If it's in the Oval Office, it's pretty clear. If it's in the hideaway office in the old executive office building, it's, it's terrible. It's unintelligible. Uh, you get snippets. Uh, and it's, it's unique when you're working on those transcripts and you're working on the snippets, snippets, you hear what you want to hear. Uh, you, you listen to the same thing 10 times. And it, it keeps changing on you. So, uh, never once were those tapes ever played, uh, uh, until, uh, Alex Butterfield revealed their existence. Nixon didn't want them for current use. They were supposed to be his research library for after he left the presidency. Nobody was supposed to know. He was going to reference them if he needed them and then destroy them. It was never supposed to be known that they, that it existed at all. But, you know, it came out and, 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 and uh, there was a subpoena that first week from the special prosecutor. And they asked for nine tapes at the beginning, mainly connected with John Dean. We've not yet introduced the concept of the special prosecutor. So I'm looking more at this point for what the president did with the tapes, regardless of who's asking for them or not. When did he start to listen to them? Well, the first thing he did was ask Rose with, uh, with Fred Bizart's concurrence. Rose Woods. Rose Woods, his longtime personal secretary, she was set up uh, and, and her assistant, a fine lady named Marge Acker, uh, and they set about doing transcripts. And, and this is very, very hard because uh, the tapes aren't all that high quality. They're on six-inch individual reels. So your first task is to find the conversation. Actually, the first task is to find the tapes. Where were they physically stored after they ran out of reel? Uh, the Secret Service saw to that. There was a uh, cabinet. I think it was built in under a staircase where the tapes were all set. And they but, marked them with the date. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, for example, these are individual recorders. So if it was a telephone line, all the telephone taps are on that tape. It may not run out for a long time. Uh, if it was uh -huh. an Oval Office, it might be replaced once or twice a day. Uh, but if he walks from the Oval Office to the old EOB, the tape recorders don't follow him. Those are on different reels. And so you've got the president's daily diary. There's, it's amazing what they do. with it. You, you, you can go online and find these. Uh, the president uh, uh, came to the Oval Office at, at, at 7.03 a.m. At 7.15, he was given breakfast that consisted of at 7.22, Bob Haldeman came in and stayed for eight minutes. At C, he took a phone call. And they just document minute by minute what the president did during the course of the day. So Rose so, is dispatched to assemble into one coherent transcript everything that has happened on the tapes? No, 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 not at all. Uh, uh, the subpoena was nine tapes. She is, she is told to transcribe the uh, subpoenaed conversations. Nothing more, 
nothing less. She has to figure out who's in the meeting, who's talking, when they're talking. And as we found from this very system here today, we talk over each other. Uh, you gesture, you say and so on. You don't speak in clipped sentences like you would in a stage play to convey accurately to the audience. You say you know, and somebody else inserts a thought halfway through. You're joking. Oh, no, not at all. I did that purposely. These are very, very hard to do. Yes. And, and there's I, I know a, that. I said that for the benefit of the listeners okay. so that they would understand and think about, God, I don't hope I never have to transcribe anything. You, it's an interesting thing. You try taping your Thanksgiving dinner, and then you try preparing a transcript, and you can't do it. You don't know if it was Bobby or John. You don't know if that clank was the spoon or the platter. I mean, you just, you, you, it's very, very hard Right. You got it. Uh, And there's a huge difference between reading a transcript and hearing the tape. There's an emphasis on the words. There's a... There's an elevation sometimes. uh, There's strong feelings. There's hesitancy. There's also profanity or expletives deleted. I am the expletive deleter. Uh, uh, that was one of my, one of my jobs. Why did you, a, a diversion, why did you do that? Uh, to preserve the dignity of the office. It was that out, your choice? Was it oh, Fred's no, choice? Was it president's Never choice? my choice. Never your choice. Uh, I'm just a, an underling. Uh, the president did not swear with the consistency and frequency that the tapes imply. Uh, you would think he would be perhaps like Lyndon Johnson, you know, with these exquisite... Uh, a profanity uh, earthy, volcano. Earthy descriptions, nothing like that. The trouble was, Nixon used the adjective goddamn all the time. And, and he, I think, didn't even realize he was saying it, but if he felt strongly, he would say, don't hit the table with that goddamn mug. You know, and, and it just kept coming up. Then we're going to publish the transcript. And the president says, "Uh uh-oh, this is using the Lord's name in vain. Let's remove it. So Fred Bazaar comes up with a phrase, expletive deleted in in, uh, brackets. brackets. And I said, listen, I'm happy to do that, of course. You're deleting an adjective, and when you delete it, People will think it's a different word. They will think it's the F word. And you, you, you really shouldn't do this. Why don't we, we eliminate the word God, leave the word damn, so they'll know you weren't saying the F word? Goes back up the chain. I never spoke to the president. I spoke to Fred. Fred spoke to the president. Answer comes back down, no. Do it the way we instructed. And I called it the Baptist filter because I think the president felt that using the Lord's name in vain would offend his core supporters. And it was better they thought he was using the F word than to know for sure what he did. Speculation. But what was his, the nine tapes are subpoenaed. They're transcribed after Rosewood's painstakingly put them together. What does the president do with those transcripts? When does he actually physically come into contact with the tapes? I don't know. Uh, They have records. It can be found that at some point he says, I guess I better listen to the tape. 
but I don't think that it had to do with those first nine. It may have. Uh, the difficulties got compounded because two of the nine conversations were never recorded in the first place. There was a phone call, and that phone wasn't tapped. There was a tape, and it, he returned to the office, to the hideaway office late in the day, and the tape machine, which had a backup reel, ran out of the backup reel, so that conversation of April 15th was never recorded. What is the missing minutes? How many of them are there, and from what tape, and how do you imagine, Jeff Shepard, that those minutes went missing? Let me postpone that just for a second. Oh, Jeff, you will answer a question directly someday. I will, just a moment. He must have listened to those tapes because he knew those two conversations hadn't been recorded, and he didn't get around to telling his lawyers. It was only last week that the Senate Watergate Committee learned of the existence of tape recordings of President Nixon's conversations, including conversations bearing on Watergate. The committee immediately asked for those tapes, and today it got its reply, a formal official no. Not only to the Senate investigators, but also to the government's own special Watergate prosecutor, Archibald Cox. That set the stage for what may well be the biggest constitutional confrontation in our history. We have reports first from ABC's David Schumacher at the White House. Few presidential statements have been so widely expected and yet so guaranteed to create shockwaves. Mr. Nixon's final decision to refuse access to the tapes on grounds of separation of powers was made yesterday in a meeting with his new chief of staff, General Alexander Haig, and Ronald Ziegler, both viewed as hardliners in this showdown with Congress. In his letter to Senator Sam Irvin, chairman of the Special Senate Committee, the president admitted that before the existence of the tapes was publicly known, he had listened to them. To quote the president, the tapes are entirely consistent with what I know to be the truth and what I have stated to be the truth. However, they contain comments that persons with different perspectives and motivations would inevitably interpret in different ways. This is a rather remarkable letter about the tapes. If you notice, the president says he's heard the tapes, or some of them, and they sustain his position. But he says he's not going to let anybody else hear them for fear they might draw a different conclusion. (laughs) I deeply regret that this... uh, situation has risen because I think that the Watergate tragedy is the greatest uh, tragedy this country has ever suffered. I used to think that the Civil War was our country's greatest tragedy, but I do remember that there were some redeeming features in the Civil War in that there was some spirit of sacrifice and heroism displayed on both sides. I see no redeeming features in Watergate. Friday, Low State One and Low Cine Theaters. Channel Two, New York. This is a special report from CBS News in Washington, where the president is about to address the nation. Here is CBS News White House correspondent Dan Rather. Good evening. The president will address the nation from his Oval Office in the White House West Wing. His speech is designed to be a broad overview of the president's basic position regarding Watergate and related possible crimes. A a four-and-a-half-page written statement outlining in more detail his answers to some of the more specific accusations has been handed out at the White House as an addendum to the speech. Among other things, this written statement repeats that the president will not release any of the controversial tape recordings that he secretly made. More about that later. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the president. 
Good evening. Now that most of the major witnesses in the Watergate phase of the Senate Committee hearings on campaign practices have been heard, the time has come for me to speak out about the charges made and to provide a perspective on the issue for the American people. For over four months, Watergate has dominated the news media. During the past three months, the three major networks have devoted an average of over 22 hours of television time each week to this subject. The Senate Committee has heard over two million words of testimony. This investigation began as an effort to discover the facts about the break-in and bugging of the Democratic National Headquarters and other campaign abuses. But as the weeks have gone by, it has become clear that both the hearings themselves and some of the commentaries on them have become increasingly absorbed in an effort to implicate the President personally in the illegal activities that took place. Because the abuses occurred during my administration and in the campaign for my re-election, I accept full responsibility for them. I regret that these events took place. And I do not question the right of a Senate committee to investigate charges made against the President to the extent that this is relevant to legislative duties. However, it is my constitutional responsibility to defend the integrity of this great office against false charges. I also believe that it is important to address the overriding question of what we as a nation can learn from this experience and what we should now do. I intend to discuss both of these subjects tonight. The record of the Senate hearings is lengthy. The facts are complicated, the evidence conflicting. It would not be right for me to try to sort out the evidence, to rebut specific witnesses, or to pronounce my own judgments about their credibility. That is for the committee and for the courts. I shall not attempt to deal tonight with the various charges in detail. Rather, I shall attempt to put the events in perspective from the standpoint of the presidency. On May 22nd, before the major witnesses had testified, I issued a detailed statement addressing the charges that had been made against the President. I have today issued another written statement, which addresses the charges that have been made since then as they relate to my own conduct, and which describes the efforts that I made to discover the facts about the matter. On May 22nd, I stated in very specific terms, and I state again to every one of you listening tonight, these facts. I had no prior knowledge of the Watergate break-in. I neither took part in nor knew about any of the subsequent cover-up activities. I neither authorized nor encouraged subordinates to engage in illegal or improper campaign tactics. That was, and that is, the simple truth. In all of the millions of words of testimony, there is not the slightest suggestion that I had any knowledge of the planning for the Watergate break-in. As for the cover-up, my statement has been challenged by only one of the 35 witnesses who appeared, a witness who offered no evidence beyond his own impressions and whose testimony has been contradicted by every other witness in a position to know the facts. Tonight, let me explain to you what I did about Watergate after the break-in occurred so that you can better understand the fact that I also had no knowledge of the so-called cover-up 
From the time when the break-in occurred, I pressed repeatedly to know the facts, and particularly whether there was any involvement of anyone in the White House. I considered two things essential. First, that the investigation should be thorough and above board. And second, that if there were any higher involvement, we should get the facts out first. As I said at my August 29 press conference last year, what really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. I believe that then, and certainly the experience of this last year has proved that to be true. I knew that the Justice Department and the FBI were conducting intensive investigations, as I had insisted that they should. The White House counsel, John Dean, was assigned to monitor these investigations, and particularly to check into any possible White House involvement. Throughout the summer of 1972, I continued to press the question, and I continued to get the same answer. I was told again and again that there was no indication that any persons were involved other than the seven who were known to have planned and carried out the operation and who were subsequently indicted and convicted. On September 12th, at a meeting that I held with the cabinet, the senior White House staff, and a number of legislative leaders, Attorney General Kleindienst reported on the investigation. He told us it had been the most extensive investigation since the assassination of President Kennedy, and that it had established that only those seven were involved. On September 15, the day the seven were indicted, I met with John Dean, the White House counsel. He gave me no reason whatever to believe that any others were guilty. I assumed that the indictments of only the seven by the grand jury confirmed the reports he had been giving to that effect throughout the summer. On February 16, I met with Acting Director Gray prior to submitting his name to the Senate for confirmation as permanent director of the FBI. I stressed to him that he would be questioned closely about the FBI's conduct of the Watergate investigation. I asked him if he still had full confidence in it. He replied that he did, that he was proud of its thoroughness and that he could defend it with enthusiasm before the committee. Because I tr trusted the agencies conducting the investigations, because I believed the reports I was getting, I did not believe the newspaper accounts that suggested a cover-up. I was convinced there was no cover-up because I was convinced that no one had anything to cover up. It was not until March 21st of this year that I received new information from the White House counsel that led me to conclude that the reports I had been getting for over nine months were not true. On that day, I launched an intensive effort of my own to get the facts and to get the facts out. Whatever the facts might be, I wanted the White House to be the first to make them public. At first, I entrusted the task of getting me the facts to Mr. Dean. When, after spending a week at Camp David, he failed to produce the written report I had asked for, 
I turned to John Ehrlichman and to the Attorney General while also making independent inquiries of my own. By mid-April, I had received Mr. Ehrlichman's report and also one from the Attorney General based on new information uncovered by the Justice Department. These reports made it clear to me that the situation was far more serious than I had imagined. It at once became evident to me that the responsibility for the investigation in the case should be given to the Criminal Division of the Justice Department. I turned over all the information I had to the head of that department, Assistant Attorney General Henry Peterson, a career government employee with an impeccable nonpartisan record, and I instructed him to pursue the matter thoroughly. I ordered all members of the administration to testify fully before the grand jury. And with my concurrence on May 18, Attorney General Richardson appointed a special prosecutor to handle the matter, and the case is now before the grand jury. Far from trying to hide the facts, my effort throughout has been to discover the facts and to lay those facts before the appropriate law enforcement authorities so that justice could be done and the guilty dealt with. I relied on the best law enforcement agencies in the country to find and report the truth. I believed they had done so, just as they believed they had done so. Many have urged that in order to help prove the truth of what I have said, I should turn over to the special prosecutor and the Senate committee recordings of conversation that I held in my office or on my telephone. However, a much more important principle is involved in this question than what the tapes might prove about Watergate. Each day, a president of the United States is required to make difficult decisions on grave issues. It is absolutely necessary, if the president is to be able to do his job as the country expects, that he be able to talk openly and candidly with his advisors about issues and individuals. This kind of frank discussion is only possible when those who take part in it know that what they say is in strictest confidence. The presidency is not the only office that requires confidentiality. A member of Congress must be able to talk in confidence with his assistants. Judges must be able to confer in confidence with their law clerks and with each other. For very good reasons, no branch of government has ever compelled disclosure of confidential conversations between officers of other branches of government and their advisors about government business. This need for confidence is not confined to government officials. The law has long recognized that there are kinds of conversations that are entitled to be kept confidential even at the cost of doing without critical evidence in a legal proceeding. This rule applies, for example, to conversations between a lawyer and a client, between a priest and a penitent, and between a husband and wife. In each case, it is thought so important that the parties be able to talk freely to each other that for hundreds of years the law has said these conversations are privileged and that their disclosure cannot be compelled in a court. It is even more important that the confidentiality of conversations between a president and his advisors be protected. This is no mere luxury to be dispensed with 
whenever a particular issue raises sufficient uproar. It is absolutely essential to the conduct of the presidency in this and in all future administrations. If I were to make public these tapes, containing as they do blunt and candid remarks on many different subjects, the confidentiality of the office of the president would always be suspect from now on. It would make no difference whether it was to serve the interests of a court, of a Senate committee, or the president himself. The same damage would be done to the principal, and that damage would be irreparable. Persons talking with the president would never again be sure that recordings or notes of what they said would not suddenly be made public. No one would want to advance tentative ideas that might later seem unsound. No diplomat would want to speak candidly in those sensitive negotiations which could bring peace or avoid war. No senator or congressman would want to talk frankly about the congressional horse trading that might get a vital bill passed. No one would want to speak bluntly about public figures here and abroad. That is why I shall continue to oppose efforts which would set a precedent that would cripple all future presidents by inhibiting conversations between them and those they look to for advice. This principle of confidentiality of presidential conversations is at stake in the question of these tapes. I must and I shall oppose any efforts to destroy this principle, which is so vital to the conduct of this great office. Turning now to the basic issues which have been raised by Watergate, I recognize that merely answering the charges that have been made against the president is not enough. The word Watergate has come to represent a much broader set of concerns. To most of us, Watergate has come to mean not just a burglary and bugging of party headquarters, but a whole series of acts that either represent or appear to represent an abuse of trust. It has come to stand for excessive partisanship, for enemy lists, for efforts to use the great institutions of government for partisan political purposes. For many Americans, the term Watergate also has come to include a number of national security matters that have been brought into the investigation, such as those involved in my efforts to stop massive leaks of vital diplomatic and military secrets and to counter the wave of bombings and burnings and other violent assaults of just a few years ago. Let me speak first of the political abuses. I know from long experience that a political campaign is always a hard and a tough contest. A candidate for high office has an obligation to his party, to his supporters, and to the cause he represents. He must always put forth his best efforts to win. But he also has an obligation to the country to conduct that contest within the law and within the limits of decency. No political campaign ever justifies obstructing justice or harassing individuals or compromising those great agencies of government that should and must be above politics. To the extent that these things were done in the 1972 campaign, they were serious abuses and I deplore them. Practices of that kind do not represent what I believe government should be or what I believe politics should be. In a free society, the institutions of government 
belong to the people. They must never be used against the people. And in the future, my administration will be more vigilant in ensuring that such abuses do not take place and that officials at every level understand that they are not to take place. And I reject the cynical view that politics is inevitably or even usually a dirty business. Let us not allow what a few overzealous people did in Watergate tar the reputation of the millions of dedicated Americans of both parties who fought hard but clean for the candidates of their choice in 1972. By their unselfish efforts, these people make our system work and they keep America free. I pledge to you tonight that I will do all that I can to ensure that one of the results of Watergate is a new level of political decency and integrity in America in which what has been wrong in our politics no longer corrupts or demeans what is right in our politics. Let me turn now to the difficult questions that arise in protecting the national security. It is important to recognize that these are difficult questions and that reasonable and patriotic men and women may differ on how they should be answered. Only last year, the Supreme Court said that implicit in the president's constitutional duty is the power to protect our government against those who would subvert or overthrow it by unlawful means. How to carry out this duty is often a delicate question to which there is no easy answer. For example, every president since World War II has believed that in internal security matters, the president has the power to authorize wiretaps without first obtaining a search warrant. An act of Congress in 1968 had seemed to recognize such power. Last year, the Supreme Court held to the contrary. And my administration is, of course, now complying with that Supreme Court decision. But until the Supreme Court spoke, I had been acting, as did my predecessors, President Truman, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, President Johnson, in a reasonable belief that in certain circumstances the Constitution permitted and sometimes even required such measures to protect the national security in the public interest. Although it is the President's duty to protect the security of the country, we, of course, must be extremely careful in the way we go about this. For if we lose our liberties, we will have little use for security. Instances have now come to light in which a zeal for security did go too far and did interfere impermissibly with individual liberty. It is essential that such mistakes not be repeated. But it is also essential that we do not overreact to particular mistakes by tying the president's hands in a way that would risk sacrificing our security and with it all our liberties. I shall continue to meet my constitutional responsibility to protect the security of this nation so that Americans may enjoy their freedom. But I shall and can do so by constitutional means in ways that will not threaten that freedom. As we look at Watergate in a longer perspective, 
we can see that its abuses resulted from the assumption by those involved that their cause placed them beyond the reach of those rules that apply to other persons and that hold a free society together. That attitude can never be tolerated in our country. However, it did not suddenly develop in the year 1972. It became fashionable in the 1960s as individuals and groups increasingly asserted the right to take the law into their own hands, insisting that their purposes represented a higher morality. Then their attitude was praised in the press and even from some of our pulpits as evidence of a new idealism. Those of us who insisted on the old restraints, who warned of the overriding importance of operating within the law and by the rules, were accused of being reactionaries. That same attitude brought a rising spiral of violence and fear, of riots and arson and bombings, all in the name of peace and in the name of justice. Political discussion to turn into savage debate. Free speech was brutally suppressed as hecklers shouted down or even physically assaulted those with whom they disagreed. Serious people raised serious questions about whether we could survive as a free democracy. The notion that the end justifies the means proved contagious. Thus it is not surprising, even though it is deplorable, that some persons in 1972 adopted the morality that they themselves had rightly condemned and committed acts that have no place in our political system. Those acts cannot be defended. Those who are guilty of abuses must be punished. But ultimately, the answer does not lie merely in the jailing of a few overzealous persons who mistakenly thought their cause justify their violations of the law. Rather, it lies in a commitment by all of us to show a renewed respect for the mutual restraints that are the mark of a free and a civilized society. It requires that we learn once again to work together. If not united in all of our purposes, then at least united in respect for the system by which our conflicts are peacefully resolved and our liberties maintained. If there are laws we disagree with, let us work to change them, but let us obey them until they are changed. If we have disagreements over government policies, let us work those out in a decent and civilized way within the law and with respect for our differences. We must recognize that one excess begets another and that the extremes of violence and discord in the 1960s contributed to the extremes of Watergate. Both are wrong. Both should be condemned. No to the extremes of Watergate. Both are wrong. Both should be condemned. No individual, no group, and no political party has a corner on the market on morality in America. If we learn the important lessons of Watergate, if we do what is necessary to prevent such abuses in the future on both sides, we can emerge from this experience a better and a stronger nation. Let me turn now to an issue that is important above all else and that is critically affecting your life today. 
and will affect your life and your children's life in the years to come. After 12 weeks and 2 million words of televised testimony, we have reached a point at which a continued backward-looking obsession with Watergate is causing this nation to ne neglect matters of far greater importance to all of the American people. We must not stay so mired in Watergate that we fail to respond to challenges of surpassing importance to America and the world. We cannot let an obsession with the past destroy our hopes for the future. Legislation vital to your health and well-being sits unattended on the congressional calendar. Confidence at home and abroad in our economy, our currency, our foreign policy is being sapped by uncertainty. Critical negotiations are taking place on strategic weapons, on troop levels in Europe that can affect the security of this nation, the peace of the world, long after Watergate is forgotten. Vital events are taking place in Southeast Asia, which could lead to a tragedy for the cause of peace. These are matters that cannot wait. They cry out for action now. And either we, your elected representatives here in Washington, ought to get on with the jobs that need to be done for you, or every one of you ought to be demanding to know why. The time has come to turn Watergate over to the courts where the questions of guilt or innocence belong. The time has come for the rest of us to get on with the urgent business of our nation. Last November, the American people were given the clearest choice of this century. Your votes were a mandate which I accepted to complete the initiatives we began in my first term and to fulfill the promises I made for my second term. This administration was elected to control inflation, to reduce the power and size of government, to cut the cost of government so that you can cut the cost of living, to preserve and defend those fundamental values that have made America great, to keep the nation's military strength second to none, to achieve peace with honor in Southeast Asia and to bring home our prisoners of war, and to build a new prosperity without inflation and without war, to create a structure of peace in the world that would endure long after we are gone. These are great goals. They are worthy of a great people. And I would not be true to your trust if I let myself be turned aside from achieving those goals. If you share my belief in these goals, if you want the mandate you gave this administration to be carried out, then I ask for your help to ensure that those who would exploit Watergate in order to keep us from doing what we were elected to do will not succeed. I ask tonight for your understanding so that as a nation we can learn the lessons of Watergate and gain from that experience. I ask for your help in reaffirming our dedication to the principles of decency, honor, and respect for the institutions that have sustained our progress through these past two centuries. And I ask for your support in getting on once again 
with meeting your problems, improving your life, building your future. With your help, with God's help, we will achieve those great goals for America. Thank you and good evening. This is George Herman, CBS News, Washington. In case you missed any part of it, here is a brief summary of the key remarks made by the president. At first, he talked about how Watergate has dominated the news media, and he said that both the hearings and some of the commentaries which have come out of the hearings have been increasingly absorbed in attempts to implicate the president, and he said it was his responsibility to defend this great office against false charges, and he did that both in the speech and in the position paper which he released tonight. He said he wanted to restate a series of facts that he had no prior knowledge, that he did not know of or encourage the cover-up of the Watergate. He said there was only one witness who testified to the contrary, who offered no facts, he said, and who was contradicted by every other witness. He said John Dean was charged by him, by the president, with monitoring the FBI and the Justice Department investigations and seeing whether anybody on the White House staff had been implicated, and he said he had, John Dean had, apprised the president that no one was. He talked about the famous September 15th meeting with John Dean, and he said that at that meeting, John Dean gave me no reason whatever to suspect anybody but those who had been indicted were involved. He again said, as he has before, that new information came in March and that he went through a number of steps ending in the appointment of the special prosecutor. He said throughout his desire was not to conceal, but to get the facts out and before the officials of the law. He talked about the tapes. He said many have urged him to turn them over to prove his innocent, but he said he reasserted the need for the president to be able to talk to his advisors in closest confidence, and he said that need applied not only to the presidency, but also to the members of Congress and in civil life to priest and penitent and to lawyer and client. He said the Watergate has come to mean something broader than the burglary. It has come to mean excessive partisanship, enemies' lists, and efforts to use the great government institutions for partisan political purposes. He said that no political campaign ever justifies obstructing justice, harassing individuals, or compromising those great agencies of the government. And he said that to the extent that those things were done, they were serious abuses, and he said, I deplore them. In the future, he said, my administration will be more vigilant in ensuring that such abuses do not take place. He said he rejected the view that politics is usually dirty and said, President Nixon, I pledge to you tonight that I will do all I can to ensure that one of the results of Watergate will be a new level of political decency. Then he turned to the question of where Watergate came from, and he said the Watergate abuses stemmed from the assumption by those involved that their cause placed them beyond the reach of rules, and this, he said, was something that began in the 1960s, became fashionable then, when individuals and groups asserted the right to obey higher morality and to break laws and to do all of this in the name of idealism, and he said this was praised in the press and from the pulpits. He appealed for... Uh, continued for, for new, renewed results and for mutual restraints by the people and by the government, mutual restraints that he said are the mark of a free and civilized society. And he said, if there are laws that we de disagree with, let us work to change them, but let us obey them until they are changed. And finally, as you heard, he talked about paralysis, and he said, I ask for your help to ensure that those who would exploit Watergate in order to keep us from doing what we were elected to do will not succeed. 
Also this evening, the president issued a position paper, and here is CBS News White House correspondent Dan Rather to discuss that. Thank you, George. The position paper runs four and a half uh, single-spaced typewritten pages. In many important ways, it parallels uh, what the president said in his speech. Uh, We will attempt to concentrate in this summary on some of the new ground that the president broke uh, in the four and a half pages. Now, understand that this is a written document handed out as the president began his speech. It's intended to be an addendum. In summary, in the four and a half pages, the president says, first of all, uh, this is not in order that it appears in the summary, but he says that he wants to correct what he said on May 22nd. You recall he handed out a written statement on May 22nd. He says he wants to correct uh, one thing in that statement, which uh, he now says was not precisely accurate. The president says that on May 22nd, uh, he spoke of uh, learning of the Ellsberg uh, psychiatrist break-in on uh, May 20, uh, March 21st. Now, the president says tonight that he did indeed learn before March 21st of the Ellsberg psychiatrist break-in, that he learned of that on March 17th. And the president, in this addendum to his speech, says that he wants to point out uh, that uh, statement, which he says was not precisely accurate in his May 22nd statement. Also, the president restates uh, the legal arguments about his refusal to turn over the tapes. And he says in part, and here I will quote directly, As part of his reasoning as to why he will not turn over any part of the tapes, the president says it is absolutely essential, if the president is to be able to do his job, that he be able to talk openly and candidly with his advisors about issues and individuals. Indeed, and we're continuing to quote directly now, indeed, on occasion, they must be able to blow off steam about important public figures. This kind of frank discussion is only possible when those who take part in it can feel assured that what they say is in the strictest confidence. That by way of uh, buttressing his argument that no tape should be released. Also, in closing, the president uh, said one thing in this addendum, the written statement to his address that he did not say in the speech, and that is, and again I quote directly, I recognize that this statement does not answer many of the questions and contentions raised during the Watergate hearings. It has not been my intention to attempt any such comprehensive and detailed response nor has it been my intention to address myself to all matters covered in my May 22nd statement. With the Senate hearings and the grand jury investigation still proceeding, with much of the testimony in conflict, it would be neither possible to provide nor appropriate to attempt a definitive account of all that took place. And then the president goes on to say that uh, he does not intend to continue discussing this matter. He ends his written statement by saying, while the judicial and legislative branches resolve these matters, I will continue to discharge the best of my ability, my responsibilities. That is a summary of the president's written statement handed out tonight in addition to his speech. George. This has been a summary of the president's speech and the White House position paper on Watergate. An analysis of the president's speech will be broadcast on the CBS Morning News tomorrow. And at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time tomorrow night, CBS News will broadcast a one-hour special report, Watergate and the President, over most of these CBS stations. From my colleague Dan Rather and myself, George Herman, CBS News, Washington. This has been a special report from CBS News in Washington. This is CBS.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.